0: John Matthews was a police officer in Greensboro, North Carolina for more than a decade from 2008 to 2019 before leaving the policing profession to enter ministry with a local church. After nearly two years in ministry, he returned to police work during one of the most challenging times in his department's history in late 2020. He's currently assigned to a community resource team, which is a street level crimes team tasked with reducing gun violence in the city. During his first run with policing, he spent five years as a detective with the department's violent criminal apprehension team that utilizes partnerships with various local and federal agencies to locate and arrest violent fugitives. During this time, he was also assigned as a task force agent with the Secret Service for three years. In 2017, John was promoted to corporal where he was then assigned to the patrol division before serving as a corporal detective on the Family Victims Unit, a team that investigates child victim and sexual assault investigations, among others. In addition to these roles, John was also assigned to his department's Special Response Team for seven years, a call-out-based team that performs high-risk search warrants as well as responds to barricaded subjects and hostage situations. He's a graduate of the University of South Carolina and is married to his high school sweetheart and keeps busy in his off time by coaching and raising his nine-year-old twins and one-year-old daughter. Thank you for tuning in to the Leadership Under Fire Optimizing Human Performance Podcast. I'm
1: your host, Patty Murphy. John, so grateful to have you with me today.
2: Happy to be here. I'm excited
1: about it. John, my first question I have to ask is, when did you know that you wanted to pursue a career in law enforcement?
2: Yeah, it's funny. It actually wasn't until my senior year uh, in college, I played sports throughout my entire childhood. I uh, played Baseball, basketball, football. I played baseball and basketball in high school. While baseball is probably my best sport, I mean, I was, a, I was a high school athlete, nothing more. Basketball was certainly my favorite. I loved it. I understood it. You know, I was good at drawing up plays at a young age and, like, fell in love also with the, with the team environment associated with sports and specifically basketball and baseball. And so, so naturally, I went to college to get a degree so that I could go teach, but more importantly, coach basketball. That's what I wanted to do. Um, And who knows, maybe coach at the high school level and then college. Who knows? Like I I didn't have all that planned out, but I wanted to coach basketball. And so I went to University of South Carolina, majored in history, uh, and I loved my time there. But it wasn't until my last semester at USC that I considered something different. And I can't, I can't tell you where it came from other than my brother-in-law was a cop. In my hometown of of Greensboro, and he he had been an NYPD cop and had moved down to Greensboro, and so anyway, he set up a ride along for me. I did it, and I mean, my goodness, I loved it. And so it was at that moment I realized I can teach and coach later in life if I want to. I I, I got to go do this. This is uh, this is gonna be great, and I want to do it. So, <laughs> um, you know, I, I applied uh, during my last semester at USC. And got hired. I, re- I really I applied to one department. I really didn't have a, a plan B. That was it. So <laughs> wow.
1: I, my next question is a bit loaded. I'm using air quotes there. Knowing what I know about you and later on down the timeline was being a cop consistent with what you thought it would be like.
2: For me, and I think this is this is a common answer for the, for the cops that I really associate myself with, like the ones that I've become really good friends with and have been on teams with, it's a common answer for them. But it's an uncommon answer, I think, in policing, if you were to pull it nationwide. For me, it was better. People call you when they're scared, when they're hurting, when they have no clue what to do, you name it. They call you pretty much on the worst day of their life, generally. Whether it's because... There's an instance of violence, or whether it's just because they got in a, a car crash. Like that can be traumatic, even if there's nobody injured. Like you know, I mean, nobody wants to get in a crash, right? And so, they they call the police on their worst day, and in many instances, you put blue lights and siren on. You get there as fast as you can to help them, right? And it's it was rewarding. And I found out very quickly that when you're assigned to a team that has a common mission and a shared interest, and everybody's moving in the same direction. Golly, it's it's so fun. So I got to work on teams uh, and we got to we got to work on assignments uh, that really made us gel like family. And so so for me, it was better, you know.
1: <laughs> well, spring boarding off of the word you just used, teams. John, you served on your department's fugitive and violent criminal apprehension team for several years. And I want to mention that we are recording this in early February. And very recently, our nation was, again, reminded of the high risks involved with the arrest of criminals as two federal FBI agents were killed in Florida while executing an arrest warrant. I'm wondering, what are the tactical challenges involved with the apprehension of violent criminals?
2: I think one of the main challenges is that the people you're looking for know that they're wanted they know they're wanted for for a violent crime, and you're on their turf, so uh, you are you're trying to locate them at a place that they know, and i don't they know the inside layout i don't know the inside layout they have, essentially they have the home field advantage right, and so again, they know the house there and they know where they want to hide, they know how they've gotten away in the past, they know what's been successful for many. Uh, honestly for what we ran into a lot of times was that if they waited out the cops and we didn't have probable cause to go in the house then they could just wait us out and cops might leave after a while and, you know and so we got in the habit of, of not leaving that became almost a, a team slogan like we're not leaving we know you. <laughs> we think you're here we know you're here um, and so so sometimes we're trying to we're trying to locate someone at a at a specific location without a ton of information that they're there. Like it might be our investigation led us to this place, but it's not like we know 100% they're in there. And so we rely on the other people that are in the house to give consent to to look for them. And a lot of times they would, most of the time they would. And we found very early on in our time together that small team slow moving tactics were far more effective than like a dynamic fast moving search through a house. It's more effective and and ultimately safer as well.
1: That's interesting. And a, and a good segue into what are the human factors, meaning like the uh, mental, emotional and moral challenges involved with the apprehension of violent criminals?
2: The human factors that 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 exist on a fugitive team, I think, are many. Um, I would say first for me, pressure, pressures like it's important to to understand that there's there's pressure to get these guys caught. You get a case, um, you work it up. This guy's wanted. He has inflicted pain he, on somebody else, um, he or she. And you spend your time on the research and investigation, and you know that's the the bulk of the time, right? Is trying to figure out where he is without actually going out and looking for him yet. Uh, and sometimes you capture him quickly, uh, sometimes you don't. And not only sometimes you don't capture him quickly, but sometimes you don't have much information at the end of your initial investigation than you did when you started. And so the pressure starts to build, and you're like, okay, how am I going to find this guy? Where where is he? So how do you handle it? And on our team, we generally go back to what we know. We'd go talk to family members. If it's a male, we would find the girlfriend or we find the ex-girlfriend, right? And and when you don't know where to go next, right? A, a lot of times we, what's best is to go do what you know how to do, right? And so, to ease the pressure, we would work in that team atmosphere to to figure out what to do next. So another one that certainly exists is mutual trust. I got to be careful saying this because I know a lot of your, a lot of the listeners are firefighters, but I've I've always thought that our violent criminal apprehension team office I was housed in was probably similar to a firehouse uh, or a baseball clubhouse, and that that it was a family, right? And we would go do a mission, we'd come back, we'd talk about it, we'd debrief it, we'd figure out how to do it better the next time. And in between, I mean, there's there's laughter, there's, I mean, it was just, it, it's like you're going to work with your best friends every day, right? We loved each other, we talked about family and faith and when our kids are acting up and, and how to handle that and what to do about this or that struggle. Um, mm-hmm. And then we'd go out and do incredibly important work together and there's nothing that builds camaraderie and mutual trust and teamwork better than doing that missional uh, work together and then coming back and talking about it. We just, we love being around each other. And so, you know, that helped us build that
1: mutual trust. I appreciate the parallels that you're drawing on here. You mentioned the fire service. You know, the fugitive team relies on partnerships with the U.S. Marshals Service, the U.S. Secret Service, the FBI, and the North Carolina State Bureau of Investigation to locate and arrest violent fugitives this is extremely interagency intensive, right? I'm curious about the obstacles to establishing a cohesive unity of effort with several law enforcement agencies that each have their own culture, interests, personalities. Like what counsel might you offer for leaders who are likely to find themselves reliant on external organizations, particularly during high risk and potentially hostile operations?
2: Yeah. So as an example, our closest partnership while I was on the team um, was with our State Bureau of Investigation, uh, like the, the North Carolina State Bureau. Like It's almost like a state police agency, State state Bureau of Investigation. So it was a relationship that went from mostly non-existent, not in a bad way. It just didn't exist. There wasn't no, no hard feelings there. It just didn't exist to an almost daily reliance on each other. And I can tell you without any hesitancy that the reason for the the cohesion and the reason it continued to build and gain momentum and become a really a reliance on each other was because of shared mission. They want to catch fugitives uh they have resources, and they don't care who gets the credit right and we at my department wanted to catch fugitives, we have resources, and we don't care who gets the credit right and when um that's a recipe for success like when when you have a shared mission and it doesn't matter who gets the credit, man, you're gonna be you're gonna be effective, absolutely. And so I would say when it comes to overcoming obstacles, if you can get the leaders of agencies on board with realizing uh, that we can help each other accomplish this mission more effectively, then man, that's paramount. Mm-hmm. Um, and we had great relationships with those other agencies you've mentioned too. Um, and, and I would say the reason for that was was what I just said. Like the shared mission is is key.
1: Makes sense, John. You've done a wide variety of law enforcement work that includes patrolling, fugitive apprehension, and conducting investigations as a detective. Is there one specific activity that you found to be particularly demanding in an emotional or a mental capacity?
2: Yeah, uh, you know, we we talked about fugitive work a bit, and while while chasing violent armed men may sound stressful, it actually wasn't. I think the importance of it, the adrenaline that came from it, and the team I did it with made it so. But a different assignment I had in my career uh, was, and that was one that was more challenging, uh, was one that I had as a, um, a corporal, which in, which in my department is sort of a first-level supervision, first-level supervisor under, um, under a sergeant who's kind of the leader of, of, of a team, a corporal on a child victim and, and sexual assault team, and there's several reasons this was stressful. Even though I can, I can honestly say I, I enjoyed my time on the team. Uh, number one, the caseload was really difficult to stay ahead of. So just when the detectives on the, on the team, uh, felt like they were treading water, they were making, gaining momentum on, on a certain case or working several cases at the same time, we'd get several sexual assaults, uh, and a child victim, which are very thorough, very, Involved investigations also very different. An adult sexual assault investigation is very different than a than a child victim case, just in the in the ways you go about it, right? And all of a sudden they're they're sinking again. So that's tough as a leader to try and keep morale up and and try and keep the work quality up when your when your guys are are struggling to keep up. And so that that was a challenge. The caseload. Uh, second, I'd say the type of investigation. And this is very specific to this type of investigation, but like with a murder or a robbery or even a, a property crime, say a B uh, and E, and pretty much every other crime, when that crime is reported to the police, the elements of that crime are met right off the bat for example, in a murder case, you have a dead body and you're trying to figure out how he got dead and who made it happen, right? The same thing with a robbery. You know the robbery happened. It's on video. They're reporting it. There's money stolen. You see that this case happened, right? This crime happened. And your job is to figure out who did it, right? But with these crimes, when we're talking about sexual assaults specifically. I can't say every time, not 100% of the time, but in the vast majority of the cases, you know the reporting victim and the name and info of the suspect right off the bat because they knew each other, right? Uh, Or they had just met. Uh, And your job is to figure out if a crime took place, uh, number one, and number two, if you can prove that crime took place, right? And so it's very common to talk to a sexual assault victim, believe everything she says, and unfortunately, just not have the proof that it happened and therefore not be able to bring charges against that offender. And that's, that man, that is a moral challenge. That's like a moral dilemma that is hard to deal with. Similarly, you might have just enough information, or ju- your, your, invest- your investigation might reveal just enough information to be able to charge the guy uh, or charge the offender with a crime, But in this case specifically, man, you better be a hundred percent sure. Like you need to be certain that this crime happened and this guy did it because you're about to label him a sex offender. And that's a, that's a huge, that's a huge deal, you know? Mm -hmm. And so those are, those are moral challenges, uh, that while hard to deal with, I think you want people, you want investigators who are willing to admit that that moral challenge exists in those positions. Does that make sense?
1: Absolutely. Um,
2: so that can, what I just mentioned, right? The caseload, the type of investigation, the moral challenges that come with it, that can eat away at you. And that's where we as a team, quite honestly, we just chatted about that. Like it was a, it wasn't, there was an open forum where you could talk about the frustrations of certain cases. Uh, we could spitball new ideas on potential leads and where to go next. Uh, we could talk about potential hazards of going in certain directions with an investigation and honestly just accepting when at this moment in time you've done all you can for this case and you're you're not going to have closure on a particular case. Um, and that's tough. We had, to, we had to really lean on each other as a team uh, during those things.
1: You know, as somebody who doesn't have any training or experience in this area, you know, it does absolutely seem like an enormous responsibility and a very stressful and chaotic position to be in. And you mentioned the support you had at the team level But are there any other tools or practices that you believed served you well in managing the stress involved with law enforcement, maybe even at a personal level?
2: For me personally, I don't know if this is a learned, I really don't know if this is a learned tactic or if it's just something I was born with. But I've, since I became a cop, have had the ability to compartmentalize work and home. And so uh, even after incredibly stressful days at home, like when I say child victim cases, one of the... One of the jobs we had on that squad was infant death cases, which is unbelievably hard to see, you know? And uh, even if there's there's no fault by anybody, right? Like I have since becoming a cop, I've just had the ability to get home and turn it off and be a dad and a husband that I need to be. And so I, unfortunately, that's not helpful for your listeners, but...
1: <laughs>
2: um, <laughs> but it, <laughs>
1: uh it's something to aim for at least
2: (laughs) something to aim for if you can turn it off and i think one way i think one way to grow in that area is to have a team you can talk about the stuff with like if you're holding it inside and it's it's gonna boil over and so you have to have an outlet um you have to be able to to talk about these stressors with whether it's the people that you work with or not so i i would say that you got to find a way to turn it off you meet cops all the time that that don't do it well. They don't right. they don't turn it off well, you know. Um, and, and I do think sooner or later it it, it catches up.
1: In interest of in the flow of the conversation and what you just said, I have a background in journalism and I spent you know my time from the age of twenty to twenty six covering news in New York City and. That was stressful and chaotic for me to have to show up to emergencies and disasters, even crimes, and try to tell those stories. And one of the things that ended up happening for me is that I met a group of young women working in the same newsroom. We were all about the same age in the same position. And we were in the number one market in our industry. So we, in theory, should have been each other's competition. But instead, we what ended up happening was we ended up... Going out often, sitting around and sharing stories about the most challenging situations that we had to navigate and, you know, offered perspective based on the other things we had heard about that scenario or story. And what we ended up calling this group was Sisterhood, which to me is always, I, I smirk whenever I'm working in these, you know, at the fire department or with leadership under fire. And everybody wants to talk about brothers and brotherhood because I have a sisterhood and you got um, a sisterhood. Yeah. And it was absolutely so important to compartmentalize because what you just said about going home was the hardest part of my day at that time, because, you know, going from one story to the next and trying to compartmentalize because I'm telling multiple stories a day, I'm not just working on one, you know. And, right. and breaking news happens. By the time you get home, and you walk in the door, and you're met with, "Hey, babe, what's for dinner?" Right. <laughs> it's it's terribly overwhelming.
2: <laughs> I think, um, you know, I, Brene Brown puts it really well when she talks about uh, she she talks about shame, and I don't I don't yeah. know if shame necessarily works its way into into this conversation, but. You could call it stress, right <laughs> like yeah uh, and and I would say that even a larger conversation within law enforcement is certainly mental health. You talk about the suicide rate for cops, and it's unsettling, to say the least. I do think there's shame within the cop community to talk about the stressors that exist in the job, right, and so mm-hmm. what she says is shame festers in the dark, right, so like if you are struggling. And you keep it to yourself, it is only going to get worse, right? Uh, you got to bring it to the light to, um, to have any sort of healing there. And so that, that would be how I cope with it. When I meet people I can trust and our team, that uh, investigative team was certainly guys that I could trust. We brought things out, out into the light for sure.
1: I think that's such a strong, resilient perspective. And luckily, you shared that with so many others so in 2019 you made the decision to leave law enforcement and pursue work as a Christian youth minister and i'm going to assume that as a husband and a father with two children at home at the time you did not make the decision lightly so what was the impetus for that career transition uh, was it professional personal or a little bit of both
2: yeah well first of all no i i didn't take it lightly at all. (laughs) I had, I I sort of, um, man, I I had faith to step through a door, and then another opened, and then another opened, and I finally made a decision to do something uncomfortable, which was to leave a vocation that I knew I loved, and I knew I was good at, to pursue one that I hoped I'd love. And I would say um, it was certainly both professional and personal. It's funny, like as as a side story, in 2008, uh, right before I'm about to walk across the the stage at my academy's graduation, uh, an old salty veteran who worked at the academy um, was was one of our officers kind of in charge of our academy says to me, are you a 30 year man? Uh, like there's this great, great pride right. with staying with the department for 30 years. And I said, yes, because it's because it's what he wanted to hear. But I remember thinking in my head, hey, no way. There's too much. to. Too, I got way too much to do in life. I'm going to do this and I'm going to have fun. I'm going to love it. But man, I got other adventures to pursue. And and uh, and uh, so after 10 years in law enforcement and having done many of the things I wanted to do in my career, I-, I pursued a need that existed at my family's local church that had been vacant for two years. And I thought, man, I've got some great ideas on how to move this ministry forward.
1: And how did you enjoy it?
2: There are several things I really enjoyed about it. I really enjoyed the kids. The kids are awesome. I enjoyed at a At a large church, your ministry has to be ultimately really owned by the volunteers uh, who who step up and lead uh, the kids in the ministry, right? And so uh leaning into those volunteers and and training them up and uh, like I man, I love that part of it. I think one of the challenges for me is that I struggled to be on mission every day. Like there was a, there was just a lot of desk work. There was a lot of there was a lot of time that had to be spent uh working on curriculum and and looking ahead and planning for the future and less time really getting my hands dirty. And I'm an absolute like personality-wise, I'm just an absolute doer. Like I've got to be in the in the in the mess and in the midst of it. And so that, that was a challenge for me. There were good things, um, I enjoyed it, but there were also challenges, certainly.
1: Understood. And what you were saying earlier about, and I'm paraphrasing, but it seems like you have a lot to give. So in late 2020, you made the decision to return to law enforcement as a police officer in Greensboro, North Carolina. I would love to unpack your decision to return.
2: Yeah. Okay. So really, uh, you mentioned, you mentioned late 2020, but this, this ultimately started the decision, the real internal struggle and thought process. And for me, you know, for me, certainly prayer started in May and and it started around the time that there was really, we were seeing a lot of social unrest over George Floyd and what happened in in Minneapolis. And ultimately, there, I can remember one specific, uh, event that, uh I knew at the time I think this is what I need to do and i and I took five months confirming that it was what I needed to do. That one event was a prayer walk uh that started in downtown greensboro uh It was about a mile long walk that ended at Government Plaza, which is uh downtown city hall type area um and, and the walk was uh my church uh, and several others within the community, kind of a diverse group of churches, that came together and said, "Hey, we're going to come together and just uh, we're going to pray for our community. Or we're going to pray for the social unrest that's happening, and we're going to do it together." A diverse group of churches, and so so I went to it uh, because my church was involved, and uh, I, I wanted to really see what this was what it was about and so there were several hundred people there um, I knew a lot of them and one specific pastor uh, stood up and and spoke uh, for about five to ten minutes gave a sermon of that and, and he talked about the the parable of the Good Samaritan and I uh, whether the listeners on here know know the Bible or not this is a this is a, a story that a lot of people know and uh, the gist of it is this there is a man walking on a road and he gets beaten robbed and left for dead. And while he's laying there beaten, robbed, naked, left for dead, two people pass by on the other side of the street. And these people that pass by are held up in high esteem. In the in the Jewish culture, it was a Levite and a priest, right? These are these are powerful, these are influential people in the Jewish culture, uh, and they both pass by. And this is Jesus telling this story, right? And so uh, he tells this story. These two pass by, and then he says, "But then a third a third person comes along, and it's uh, it's a Samaritan. And The Samaritan helps them, clothes them, puts them on his mode of transportation. <laughs> I can't remember what it is in the story right off right offhand, and and takes them to an inn and pays for them to stay there, and says care for this guy until he's better, right? And so anyway, this little sermonette was basically saying, hey, the church needs to step up and be the Good Samaritan, right? The church needs to step up and help our brothers and sisters who are hurting in this community. And certainly that's true. And I think the church does that very well. Uh, But for me, and this is like incredibly important, uh, an incredibly important part of this story is that the Samaritan was hated, like was despised by Jewish culture. Like it was, it, it was racism from two thousand years ago, right? Um, it was hated, and he helped anyway. And I think Jesus was very intentional when he tells that story. He's pointing this out uh, because prior to this, prior to him telling the story, he was asked. Who is my neighbor and why should I love my neighbor? And so he's pointing out that your neighbor is the person that you hate, right? That's the whole purpose of this story. And so for me, when I heard this story, I was thinking, goodness gracious, you talk about a good Samaritan. The cops are in my community who I know and love throughout my community. Like I know most of them. There's almost I don't know how many there are in Greens, we're almost 700. And golly, they're good people, right? They're uh, they're wanting to do the right thing. They're there to help people. Uh, and they are going to do just that. They are going to, like, a cop is going to answer a 911 call to anywhere in the community, called in by anybody, whether they hate them or not, and is going to go do their best to help that person uh, resolve whatever it is their problem is, right? And so for me, that sermon by that, that local pastor was not meant to... Uh, Highlight the fact that police do that. It was meant to highlight the fact that the church needs to step up. But for me, it was, uh, hey, the police do this every single day, and I and I've got to go do it again. Like that was that was essentially it.
1: That's a very powerful story and perspective. At this point, I need to make it clear for our listeners that you are the father of three children, a one-year-old and nine-year-old twins. And I should probably mention that prior to adoption, your wife and you originally fostered twins when they were toddlers, and your family is multiracial. The twins are Black. So I can only imagine that you've spent as much time as anyone thinking about the role of law enforcement, given your vocation as a cop, your work in Christian ministry, and your role as a father to two children of color. And I'm not even sure where to start but maybe start by exploring uh, two prevailing narratives right now from your perspective. And I think one narrative being that policing unjustly targets people of color and that aggressive tactics are more commonly applied to people of color. And then the other narrative being that law enforcement is being unfairly disparaged, vilified, and being intentionally undersourced in a contest of political and social ideology.
2: Oh man, I'm glad you said you're not even sure where to start because I... uh man, these are <laughs> Let me start I think by saying two things. One, uh, or first, there these are terribly uncomfortable conversations that I I for one welcome to have with anyone anytime. Like I have my convictions as a Christian and as a police officer that I don't desire to convince you of, but I will be honest with you about my perspective and I think conversations um uh, between people of different perspectives are are really 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 valuable only if uh you're willing to listen and and I'm I'm certainly willing to listen to other perspectives. Um and 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 the second being uh so that's one thing I want to say the second being that I think there's two conversations to have here. You mentioned one narrative being the police unjustly target people of color and that aggressive tactics are more commonly applied to people of color. That being one of the narratives. I think um there's two conversations to have with that. One being that the police unjustly target people and the other being that society as a whole unjustly targets or treats minorities. Let's start with police. I think we have to start in a place that perception is reality. Like it doesn't matter that I my experience shows me that I don't believe I unjustly target black people and I don't believe the people I work with do. Uh what matters is, well, I would say the vast majority of my friends that are people of color and my neighbors that are people of color who have no reason, um, anecdotal reason or like personal experience reason to distrust the police, don't. They don't trust them. Right. And so I think we we start there. Like, why why does this mistrust exist and where do we go from there? And so You know my faith, and we'll we'll get to we'll get to my faith, my role as a pastor, and all that. But my faith tells me to mourn with those who mourn. And so, what does that look like from from my vantage point and from conversations I've had? I think we really do have to make an effort in this country and in our communities to have real conversations about these issues with with people of color, with minorities. Um, I had one recently with an older older black man who's been very successful uh, in business and in life. He's raised good kids who are now successful adults. And I, this was kind of in the midst of, of all the unrest, but I asked him straight up and we have, we've built r- relational capital, you know, so that I can ask honest questions and he can answer honestly. Right. And, and that's important, right? But mm-hmm. I asked him, do you think there's a problem in our community with young black men perpetrating violent crime against other young black men? And he said, absolutely, of course there is. And from here, there's a, a myriad of solutions, right? We can talk about the school system, we can talk or a myriad of problems, really. We can talk about the school system, we can talk about mentors, we can talk about fathers, we can talk about drugs, we can talk about access to resources or food deserts, and like the list goes on and on. Many of those issues technically aren't police problems, but they end up being being police problems, right? And so but I asked what like if that's a problem, what would he expect police to do to help solve some of these problems? If violent crime, which absolutely becomes a police problem and a, and a societal problem, if that is a problem, then what would your solution, like, what do you want police to do? Ultimately, I was asking, like, do you want us to be out there stopping cars, getting guns, catching drug dealers, or do you want us to be waiting for the next 911 call and just being completely reactive, right? And he said, no, 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 of course, of course. I Like, I want y'all stopping cars. I want you getting the drug dealer. I want you doing all this, right? and And again, this is one conversation, but i based on other conversations, I do believe it's it reflects what many people believe right and so um, how do you think we get guns? How do you think we catch drug dealers how do you how How do we do it right? So how do these investigations start and and investigations start hundreds of different ways, but like one of the main ways is traffic stops, right, and it may be that you're stopping cars where violent crime has taken place or where houses are getting broken into because we have access to crime analysis software that tells us where the where the crimes have been happening for the last month, right? And we're going to go work those areas. And so he said, yeah, I want y'all stopping cars. Of course I do. And of course, you know, he offered some solutions like, well, what about stopping one white driver for every black driver, which <laughs> is, of course, an unrealistic expectation. <laughs> and so, and it's unrealistic. And, and there may be listeners who are like, well, why? Why is that unrealistic? And And the reality is, if we are policing where violent crime is happening, then we're going to be policing neighborhoods that are primarily minority. And so I think the simplicity of it can be boiled down to the fact that cops are going to be where there's crime. And I think I can't imagine there's much of society that doesn't want that. They want cops where there's crime. And I can tell you that the people in the neighborhood who are not causing problems in those neighborhoods want the police there. And I can tell you that just from personal experience. They absolutely want us there. And so the reality is that police are going to be where where the crime is. And if you want the police where the crime is and you want them being proactive in trying to stop violent crime or trying to prevent it, unfortunately, there are going to be more traffic stops. There are going to be more arrests. There's possibly going to be more uses of force, not necessarily lethal, but like reportable uses of force. If you have more interactions, then the percentages are going to follow that. And so, so we touched on sort of police unjustly, or like the the notion that police unjustly and target minorities. And I think to touch on society, like the societal view of minorities in our communities. And I, you know, right before George Floyd, I think some people probably forget it almost gets overlooked. Is the Ahmaud Arbery? case. And uh, some others come to mind like George Zimmerman several years ago. I mean, that was almost 10 years ago now. Th- that t- for me brings to mind the fact that society as a whole does look at minorities differently. And and so we touched on the fact that my two nine-year-olds, my adopted children are black. Um, and let me talk about my son. Man, I love him so much. He's he's wide open. And that term is like, is thrown out a lot, but he is truly wide open. Like he he rarely wears a shirt all year round. He never wears shoes. Like he's just and, and he's he's either a hundred miles an hour or he's sleeping. Like those are the two speeds, right? And so and right now it's really funny. Like he runs around the neighborhood. He's got his friends all around the neighborhood. He rides his bike with no no shoes and no shirt. And and right now it's funny. It's cute. Nobody worries about him. Right. And the reality is, you know, when he hits puberty and turns sixteen and and wears basketball shorts and an undershirt and who knows, hey, he doesn't, maybe puts a do-rag on, somebody might call 911 on him, right? Or somebody might decide, this dude's up to no good, and I'm going to put a stop to it before something happens, before he breaks into a house, right? And so the the reality is, and you can't convince me otherwise, I mean, I'll have a, you know, we talked about conversation earlier, like, the reality is those 911 calls to check on somebody or citizens taking matters into their own hands, they don't seem to happen with white teenagers. And so, for me, it, it's eye-opening, but it's also okay. Well, I, I I do need to raise him a little bit differently than than I would my white daughter, right? Or or if I had a white son. And so, uh, I don't know. I think that's I think that's worth mentioning that there is a difference between police potentially unjustly targeting and society as a whole unjustly targeting. And I think in a lot of cases, when society does it police still get blamed for, like police are an easy target to say, this is this is what's wrong with our society.
1: Thank you for sharing both those personal and professional perspectives. As an observer, you know, and a former journalist and someone who's actively engaged in human performance optimization efforts with both Leadership Under Fire and the FDNY. It seems to me that human factors science is largely absent from the conversations about law enforcement that are taking place across the country, in the media, in politics, and in legislative circles, specifically how individuals are impacted by stress, both law enforcement and civilians, whether it's an armed or hostile perpetrator or an innocent civilian. I'm wondering what you think, you know, why is that?
2: This may be true from the circles you mentioned, right? Political, legislative, media, et cetera. But I don't think it's true inside law enforcement circles or inside the training that exists within law enforcement. Quite honestly, I'm not convinced that the people in the political arena or the media, that they care about the human <laughs> the human factors that exist in law enforcement, right? I mean, in 2021, I think we've seen more than ever that with, with media, advertising money wins. And so what story will keep that coming in? And I don't say that from a victim mentality, like, oh, poor poor police, you know, we don't get any breaks. I, I don't mean, like, like I just think it doesn't win those groups anything to talk about the fact that mistakes are sometimes made in really fast-paced, really high-pressure situations by humans. Like, when we're filming this, last night was the Super Bowl, and, man, when you're moving around and things are moving fast and you're under pressure, Mistakes are made. Like Patrick Mahomes made passes last night that he hasn't made all season that, that got intercepted. You know, and like it's not a not a great analogy, but I think it works. Right, like cops are humans, and when when something goes wrong, sometimes it's absolutely it shouldn't have happened, and there's no way around it. Sometimes that cop made a mistake because mistakes happen when things are moving fast. And so I would say I think police all over the country have been reading and listening to Grossman for years, like Dave Grossman. I'm sure your listeners have heard of him, right? It it was highly recommended. It wasn't mandatory, but it was highly recommended reading uh, when I was in the academy 13 years ago. And there have been trainings throughout my career that have at least tried to understand the physiological and psychological effects of stress in high-pressure situations. And so that is something um, that law enforcement has been doing, I think maybe they could do it better at times, but like on the teams that I was on, um, whether it was our special response team or the violent criminal apprehension team like I talked about earlier, we talked a lot about the OODA loop, which I'm sure you've touched on in the podcast, where uh, you are constantly in, you are constantly receiving new information that you have to observe and you have to orient yourself to that information. Then you have to decide what you're going to do with that information. Then you have to, you have to act on it, right? And so, mm-hmm. uh, man, we've been talking about that in law enforcement for years. There's no doubt some are better at it than others. And some who have been in more stressful situations handle those stressful situations and get themselves out of the OODA loop, right? They get themselves out of like the tunnel vision, and they're able to receive the new information that's coming in and then act on it. And then, of course, you see videos it's unfortunate but you see them where the cops aren't able to take new information and make rational decisions at that time like i think it's okay to comment because it's out there on a recent case that i think it was in new york i don't i don't know if it was in the city or not but there was a 9 year old who was pepper sprayed and my son's 9 <laughs> it's like you can't and and so in that situation he's handcuffed in the back of the seat and he's, he ends up getting pepper sprayed and it's like i can't imagine A situation where if those officers had had really looked at what they're dealing with and and taken a step back and seen a a perspective outside of what they're seeing three feet in front of them, that they would have taken that action. All that's to say, I think cops have been talking about and training how to, at least where I am, how to take new information, analyze that information quickly, and make a decision and act on it. Uh, I, I think that training has been happening for years.
1: John, you've been involved with Leadership Under Fire's effort to advance tactical leadership and human performance in high-risk settings. So what are one or two areas where you think law enforcement can stand to benefit from increased attention to human factors and human performance?
2: Well, you said one or two, but, you know, you sent me these questions a couple days ago and I came up with three. So I think... I think uh number 1 self awareness, number 2 sort of self analysis and number 3 self correction as well as like the courage to offer correction to others and accept correction right like that's a very uncomfortable thing but we we need to do it. So self awareness, how are my words, actions, demeanor, tone affecting the interaction that I am in right now in real time. The best cops can do that. Like it's just a fact. I think I think the best leaders can do that, right? Like they're able to tell, okay, what I'm doing right now isn't working and they're able to change what they're doing and how they're acting on a dime, right? And so when you see these videos come out where cops appear to act in the wrong, one thing normally stands out to me, and that's that it's, it, it it just seems very difficult for cops to stop doing what they're doing in the moment. Right. Um, like I said, whether that be tunnel vision or lack of training for high stress situations, like that's what happens. And you can see it, you can hear it in their breathing a lot of times, there is sometimes a lack of self-awareness. And so I think a lot of that can be improved with training, um, with just talking about the fact that this is something you need to be able to do. Like you have to be able to sort of act as if you're watching yourself and see how it's working. The second one, uh, self-analysis, right? And I get this a little bit from, I know you've had Fader on, um in his book Life is Sport and you know he talks about a batter can go up there and have an incredible at bat and hit a hit a you know foul off five pitches to stay alive and then hit a screaming line drive directly at the center fielder and get out. And all that counts as is an out. It counts as nothing more, you know. <laughs> but that doesn't mean he didn't control what he can control. It doesn't mean it wasn't a successful at bat, right? Meanwhile, uh that same batter or you know, can come up next time. And swing at a lousy pitch that he never should have swung at and hit a hit a pop-up that falls in between the right fielder and the the first baseman and you know get on base. And that's technically in the scorebook a more effective at bat. But if you're analyzing yourself, it, it's not, right? And so the idea of controlling what you can control, I think in law enforcement, and I'm sure in on the fire ground as well, the idea that you can answer a call very well, the best you could. You can answer it ne- nearly perfectly. You can do everything as you were trained. You can keep your cool. You can bring it, you know, field information and make the right decision. And it can end terribly because you do not have control over how the guy you're dealing with is going to respond. You can get hurt. Your partner can get hurt. Uh, you can end up having a, a use of force, which doesn't mean something <laughs> necessarily went wrong. It just it, these things. Happen right in police we're dealing with constantly evolving situations that can change faster than you can than you can even think sometimes and so on the flip side you can be lackadaisical you can be completely untactical you can use uh, you can be out of shape uh, you can uh, and the call can end up fine you know you can clear that call and never have to go back and it doesn't mean you did your job well right Um, you can be lucky for a long time like until you're not you know and so I think self-analysis, like going back and looking, okay, did I do that right? When I got promoted to corporal, I, that's something we talked about in our lineups fairly regularly. It's like you got, when you get done with a call, get in your car and, and just be honest with yourself. Like just, like that's not that hard. Like be honest with yourself. Like you might not have the, the courage to tell your buddy he did a bad job. You know, in that moment, that's okay. Be honest with yourself. How did you handle that? How'd you handle yourself? Did you answer it the best way you could have? And if you didn't, then what can you take to your next call to do it better? I think that is, that is sometimes, sometimes missing from cops. And then finally, self-correction. I don't think anybody loves being corrected, like being told they're wrong, right? <laughs> there is a common theme with the best cops that I've ever worked with. And man, I've worked with some really, really, really good cops. Which is like a humble confidence in their competence, right? Like a humble confidence in their abilities. Um, and I say humble because good cops welcome the feedback and, and they just, they want to get better. They know that the next call can make them look like a fool, like, or can, can hurt them or God forbid kill them. Right. Uh, I say confident because they believe they're the best ones for the job, even though they're humble enough to admit they could mess it up. And finally, confident because you can't be a good cop if you don't. Understand the basics and become a master of the basics, right? And I, when I say that, I'm talking about the law. I'm talking about Fourth Amendment and uh, search and seizure, and when you're when you're able to arrest, and and then knowing your department's policy, right? You got to be competent with your department's policy, even if the law says you can do, your department says you can't, right? And then so finally, even more into the human factors of communicating with people and getting the job done in an effective manner, and so. I say self-correction, correction, because you've got like the best cops are good at those things. They're humble, humbly confident in their competence, but they also are willing to look back and say, okay, I need to change this about myself after they've, they've messed up. And then finally, and I touched on this a second ago, sort of like parenthetically, the courage to offer correction to others and accept correction. And so the, the courage to do that.
1: Unfortunately, we have to begin winding down now, and I only have two more questions for you. I'm curious how your Christian faith informs your philosophy on operational risk.
2: Yeah, ultimately, and this fits well into the LUF mold, um, and, and I, I feel like I've touched on it. I'll probably beat a dead horse, but the mission trumps everything else. And uh, when you talk about uh, my Christian faith, what I believe, it tells me that Jesus was on mission. Right. He was on mission to redeem mankind from themselves and from their sin and bring them back into relationship into into the fold into relationship with him. And he did that through a process by leaving the comfort of the father of where he was and entering into our mess, <laughs> like entering into the I mean, look at the world. It's a, it's a mess for the most part. And living and loving perfectly, uh, interacting with those no one else would, healing those others wouldn't touch. All of this to die as a substitute for the very people who, who crucified him, right? It was completely selfless. He was on mission. He knew what to do. He knew the end result. And the mission was the most important thing, not his comfort or his reputation or wealth or power, all of which he, he probably could have had if, if that was the plan or that was the mission, right? Most important thing was what he came to do uh, for us, right? And so for me, uh, that knowledge allows me to make the mission the most important thing that can be both broad and specific, right? It can apply, like very specifically, it can apply to to settling up as a cop, like I've gotta go protect those who cannot protect themselves. And so it, it can apply to settling up to enter a house to save kids who are, uh, kids in a family from an assaultive, threatening, dangerous person, right? Or it can apply to, to policing differently uh, or trying something new that hasn't been tried before because you know it's the right thing to do. Or it can apply, like we touched on earlier, to stopping someone in blue. And again, I don't. I know I've said it once or twice. Like I don't. I don't think systemic uh, police racism is is actually happening. And I've touched on that. And I don't think excessive use of force is something that society, like, is a gigantic problem in our policing by any means. Um, And I don't think the the statistics would bear that out. But the fact of the matter is we've seen videos recently just in this year where a simple correction from another cop would have ended a situation in a much better way and so it can apply very specifically to that to stopping someone in blue from doing doing what's wrong or or even breaking them from that tunnel vision uh, that we talked about where they're not breaking out of it themselves and so the point of it is is his life and his mission frees me to live on mission in this New vocation, new in parentheses. I mean, new in uh, quotations.
1: (laughs) Right, right. Renewed, maybe. That's right. So, John, what are you most optimistic about or looking forward to the most in 2021?
2: Yeah, without a doubt, I think, uh, and I touched on earlier, one of the reasons for the transition back to it, back to police work, was being in the mess right like bringing order to chaos where i find chaos like where where i get called to or if the chaos more broadly is the is the gun violence happening in our city right bringing some order to that and so it's a mess out there right with violent crime political chaos social unrest you you name it um i want to be in it and i'm pumped that my department has given me the opportunity to do it again i'm really excited about it
1: excellent Well, thank you so much for taking the time to speak with me today. And I'm really proud and happy that we were able to have you on the Leadership Under Fire podcast.